0: happy saturday it is february 20th 2021 and you are listening thank goodness to morning meeting i'm ashley baker the style editor of airmail
1: and i'm michael haney a deputy editor here at airmail good morning ashley
0: good morning michael how are you feeling today
1: i'm good i mean i uh, um hope you can't tell how hungover i am from fat tuesday and everything i just (laughs) i just got back wow mardi gras was bonkers this year it's bonkers but i'm back
0: Thank God. We're so relieved to have you. You know, Michael, you know, there's all this good news about the vaccine, right? Like one of my friends gets a morning COVID briefing. She's an executive at a bank. And she said, we're going to hit herd immunity by Labor Day. And I said, okay, this feels optimistic, but maybe it's a sign of my depression but I feel like call me crazy like I just don't see things as getting that much better despite all the facts to the contrary.
1: Let me just frame this for our listeners. You're basically asking for me to be the optimist here?
0: Yeah, I am. I need This is how this is how low I've got Michael. <laughs> this is how
1: low <laughs> This is how desperate you are. <laughs> Michael will cheer me up. He's the He's always so optimistic. I think it's going to get better.
0: February in New York is always tough, okay? That's why, like, every President's Day weekend, the city empties out because it's like the collective stress struggle, you know, of four months of winter or whatever we're at now. Like, it just hits its apex and everyone has to go somewhere warm. Of course, we can't do that this year. Well, Michael, at least we've got a bang-up issue of airmail.
1: We do. And, you know, before we get to that, Ashley, I just want to say last week... Every, you kind of laughed at me when I talked, when I told everyone about the big story and the big one of our stories in the issue. Larry, remember Larry the cat?
0: I wasn't a believer in the paramount importance of Larry the cat. For me, relatively small piece of the issue, but I was wrong.
1: Okay, Larry the cat, who was, as I always said, the chief mouser at Number Ten Downing. That was for cat lovers. Now I've got a dog lover story out of, the, out of the UK written, strangely enough, by the sister of the prime minister who lives in 10 Downing Street, Rachel Johnson, one of our contributors. And she's got a story this week, very short one, but fun for for dog lovers amongst you in airmail land, uh, morning meeting land. You know, it used to be very simple if you lived in London. If you lived in London, you didn't have dogs. You kept your dogs in the country. Because dogs, people, aside from like the queen at Windsor Castle, people didn't keep their dogs in the city, right? It was not seen as humane. But now, kind of like New York, where a lot of people are, are getting COVID dogs and things, there's been a rise in, these, in people getting dogs in London, right? The, the, and the, these kind of lockdown dogs. But the problem in London, Ashley, do you know what the problem is?
0: I mean, I know what some of the problems are, but tell me.
1: Okay, the problem is people in London aren't used to, Cleaning up after their dogs, right? What? Because they don't have dogs there. So now, Rachel points out, it's led to a poodemic. Who knew? Where, where the where the poop is growing excrementally, as they say. So more dogs in London. But, you know, that's my dog story, my shaggy dog story. Now let's get on with the issue.
0: I'll take it. Okay, Michael. Pressing meeting. Shall we start with Britney Spears?
1: We shall start and end because all things begin and end with Britney, right?
0: All right. Well, I mean, look, did you watch the Britney documentary? I have. Look, Michael, this is why we make a good podcast team, because while you were busy worrying about highbrow matters of culture, I was reading Us Weekly and People (laughs) Man, still am okay like the tabloid culture of the aughts was my jam okay i've always worked in fashion magazines for the most part so like it was all par for the course i had to be au courant on all that stuff i wasn't the biggest fan of britney's music but as a personality and a cultural story of sorts like to me the trajectory was fascinating to watch and still is in the documentary they look at britney's story through the lens of the free britney movement and this conservatorship but to me there is so much more to the story
1: it's good that there's more you want to see you know why me because there's more to read in this week's issue and we've got the woman who wrote it lily analick one of our great contributors writers at large here right who wrote a great sort of piece about what you didn't see in that britney documentary almost to your request ashley all
0: right michael well here is lily analick here to tell us everything we thought we already knew about britney but it turns out it was all a mirage welcome lily hi ashley hi michael First of all, how do you explain the Free Britney movement and why it sort of came apart, you know, you know why it's bubbled up at this moment in cult, in our culture?
2: Well, I mean, like, I'm sure some of this has to do with me, too. I mean, I guess, look, I'll just say, I mean, I watched the New York Times documentary um, on Britney and I thought it was kind of workmanlike and, you know, perfectly well done. But But to me, part of the impetus for this piece was to talk about that 2007 VMAs, which, you know, doesn't get discussed in the documentary. And I felt that the way the kind of the, the New York Times documentary was working, it was kind of charting her rise and her fall. But my own feeling was that kind of in her fall, you know, there was this other kind of rise, like a, kind of a much more interesting performer. And she seemed like kind of the most viscerally alive person on the planet in, in, in those moments. And to me, she was becoming kind of much more interesting as an artist, um, in that period, I mean, I love that VMA performance. And then it seems like she kind of this breakdown kind of kind of ends in early 2008 when she gets loaded into the Cedars Sinai bound ambulance. I think for a psych emergency psych evaluation, um, and she never really reemerges. Do you know? Like the conservatorship came in very very soon after that. It was first it was temporary, and then it became permanent later that year. But ever since, she seems she seemed like she was locked away from us, you know, or like she seems like she's behind glass, even when you see her make public appearances. And I understand understand the impulse, the Free Britney movement, because you you just feel like somehow she's lost to us, somehow she's been locked away. But to me, there's something very kind of like, there's like a real strength to her. and there was a wildness to her and there was a freeness to her and she was so exciting to watch.
0: Yeah, and she also has like a totally different way of controlling her image, right? Because th- the Lady Gaga generation, these guys grew up having so much more control over how they're perceived by the world, mainly because of social media, right? And Britney didn't have that. Like her conduit to the world was the tabloids, the fashion magazines, you know, the entertainment news. Such a different thing.
2: It's a totally different thing, but I also just feel like there's this, like, there's this weird basic sincerity to her, like, like, of course, I mean, I'm sure she's, like, adept at, um, controlling her image at some level, I guess she would have to be, but I also just, there was something where you just felt she was behaving, like, acting, like, how she would, you know, not acting, I mean, just, reacting or just being that natural. And I feel like that's part of the, like this obsessive love fans have for her. I, I was I, I, I say somebody somebody like Madonna who, who became famous like you know in her mid-twenties, you know, so when she was older and kind of more of a fully formed person. But for all her, you know, she's had different incarnations in the public certainly, but I always feel like she never shows soft underbelly. It's always rock hard abs, you know, it's always controlled at some level. And I felt with Britney, there's just there's a much more kind of softer, kind of open quality to her. Um, That I think people, you know, so people really love her. Do do, do you know what I'm saying? Like this Britney movement is kind of a tribute to that.
0: Yeah, she's much more relatable in many ways, right? Because her struggles are so out there. And, you know, I think every time we've seen her in the last, what, decade, maybe longer, like she's had that kind of vulnerability side, like you look at her no matter what she's doing, and you sort of think, is she okay? Like, what's going on there? You know, and and in that way, she's very relatable, right? How, How many of us can relate to Madonna, right? Or even Lady Gaga, like, you know, they're humane and nice people and all of the rest, or at least so it seems, but there's not like that sort of, Human vulnerability that Brittany seems to have.
2: No, and she seems like she's in trouble. I mean, I think that's what people are reacting to, too. Like, you're kind of looking at her Instagram for clues, like for SOS signals. You know, like there's something about her where she seems locked away, right? And it's like the conservatorship, when you get into it, just seems so crazy. It seems so crazy. It's for, she definitely, I mean, she, she seems fully out of control in 2008, um, and like, you know, needed help. But, you yeah, know, she's like making a ton of money and she seems to be kind of living in, um, a very um, controlled and respectable life, and she's been been doing this for for years and years now. So, so why 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 would why would kind of a cadre of lawyers and her dad still have control over her when she turns forty this year? It's it's, it's nuts.
0: Well, and in many ways, she feels like she's stuck in the past. Like she belongs to this time period that hasn't existed for twenty years.
2: I, I keep talking about this two thousand seven VMAs, but like I think her best song is that um, that Give Me More song, and it opens with that kind of it is a declaration of self. You know, it's Britney bitch. And it's funny because we're talking about relatability, which of course she certainly has. But one of the things I liked about that song so much was that we were, you know, she was calling us bitch. You know, it was like somehow we're not her equals. It was this, It was this kind of assertion of self and it was like, an assertion of you know who we are in relation to that self, and I just thought it was kind of great. And she kind of went out there and did this performance, and she wasn't in that kind of insane physical condition that she was usually in during that period. You know where it's like, you know, she just looks perfect. She looks like a um, you know a you know a human doll, and she was like you know like three pounds or four pounds above perfection. And her hair didn't look right. Like she was supposed to have a, a wig because she'd had um, she'd shaved her head only a few months before, but she, she was but she kind of wouldn't sit still for the wig and just got a few pieces of like hair extensions kind of glued to her head. And she went out there and it wasn't, it wasn't that kind of showgirl performance that she usually gave. And I always felt it was like, it was a kind of like the true spirit of rock and roll and that performance, even though she was lip syncing. And that was the, you know, and like she got reviled and that kind of, I remember so distinctly, um, um, Julia Vitali was my 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 editor on on this piece for Airmail, and she wanted she she put a note in the margin, and she said should should we mention that that comment by Sarah Silverman, who said something like you know, uh, Britney Spears, ladies and gentlemen, 25 years old, and you know she's accomplished everything she's going to accomplish, and I had no idea that it had gone viral. I just I had it from memory. I remember that moment, and just you know, disliking so much what Sarah Silverman said in that moment. I thought it was so ugly and I thought that Brittany had done something great. Lily,
0: I was telling Michael one of the things that surprised me about that Times documentary is how obvious it all seemed. Like, yeah, it makes perfect sense. Like, I want to see like an eight-part series really looking at at all of this in so much greater detail because to me that was just the bare bones kind of outline of what's going on.
2: Bare bones outline and it's like, it was also just like, I'm telling you, like, if you were a thinking person paying attention during that period, you knew that the press was being insane to her.
1: You know, Britney started as a mousketeer, right? Extremely young. So in, any, in in many ways, obviously, she's been a performer her whole life. But what I see in her, and this is the, the fascination of, 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 I guess, for a Britney figure, just like whether it's Marilyn Monroe or other women performers like this, we see what we want to in them. Um, but I, you know, I see also this sort of summon some, some likenesses or a, a, a analogies to Michael Jackson right which is just quote unquote weird behavior and yet when you really pull back, you're like well of course it's like you you there was never any normality to that life and you know despite the normalities of what we want to see in her like oh she's a nice kid growing up in Louisiana but you' you're, when you grow up in that house and grow up like that and under a camera from the time you're like eight or nine years old like her or like performing to please other people. Where's it going to lead? Yeah, where's
2: it going to lead? You're distorted, and it's and it's also there. There, you also felt like she was trying to. She's so famous, like famous in that way that Elvis was famous or Marilyn was famous, like so famous. And is there a way out?
1: You 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 mentioned these self abasing apologies. Whether it's Justin Timberlake. Or, you know, other people who were...
2: First of all, I thought that Justin Timberlake, I don't think he should have to apologize. I mean, not to me. <laughs> what was happening there is it was a painful breakup. And maybe, you know, the, the word was she cheated on him and he was reacting. I never thought he was being, like, awful to her. That's my own personal opinion. Um, but it's, I know I sound probably insane, but I just, I, I you know...
1: I don't think you're insane. I mean, look, I'm just going to sort of remind people, like, we live in a world where, like, I'm, I would dare say in someone like uh, uh, Peter Sellers, the opera director, like, like there is an opera to be made about her.
2: She, she's a natural for an opera. There's something about them that just, they seem to express America. They, 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 those kind of figures, fears. And I don't know, they just seem kind of completely essential to me. And, she, and she's absolutely one of those. And what Ashley said before, an eight part, yeah, I would love to watch an eight part series. I would love to watch something that isn't just giving you kind of, um, kind of a quick overview, but really kind of getting into it. I love it. All right, Lily, I think we know what
0: your next podcast needs to be about.
2: It's <laughs> Get to work. Brittany, I'm coming for you. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you both so much. All right.
0: Awesome. Lily, thank you so much. All right, Michael. Well, I think it's, it's official. Lily has a better podcasting voice than either one of us.
1: You know, if I could have a, my, my world perfectly, I think I wouldn't have Siri on my phone. I'd have Lily on my phone. That would be the voice that would be talking to me, right?
0: Michael, we should monetize this. Don't tell her. Speaking of unexpected voices on your phone, we really should talk about Clubhouse, which is the hottest social network in Silicon Valley right now. Um, Are you on Clubhouse, Michael?
1: (laughs) When it comes to Clubhouse, you know, I've got a little bit of the the old Groucho Marx, Woody Allen uh, sort of line, which is, you know, I really don't want to be a member of any club that would have me, right? So... That's kind of where I am. Call me skeptical, call me dubious. So tell me why I should be on Clubhouse. The hottest thing, which is now what? Valued at a billion dollars all of a sudden?
0: Yeah. I mean, look, Kat Rosenfield wrote a great piece for us this week about Clubhouse. It's basically a primer for those who have not deigned to join this. And I'm not necessarily suggesting that you should, Michael. It's like you've got other things to do. You've got books to read, a job to complete, a lifestyle to live, right? But the whole user experience of Clubhouse is certainly one of a kind. So users can listen in on voice calls between two or more people and they gather together in these pop-up rooms to chat about a variety of topics. To me, it sounds like an oral... A-U-R-A-L version of like the old AOL chat rooms and like what good came from those really. Let's be clear. Are you on it? No, I'm not on it. I was invited though. Claim to fame.
1: Whoa. So you snubbed them. That's even cooler.
0: Watch out. It's like when you were invited to be the member of Raya, the dating app, like no one got the memo that I've been married for a decade, but like, it's cool. (laughs) Don't you remember when you were invited for Gmail? Like even like everything started off as invitation only, Michael. Like Gmail was invitation only, Facebook was invitation only. It means nothing to me.
1: I didn't even know all that. You know why I'm skeptical of these things? It just is like you be like, oh, everyone like you start reading like the coverage of it, like and Elon Musk was on one, and so and so was on one, and then you're like, well, of course they were. They're investors in it. Like they're gonna like they're going to make you think you're gonna get access to them, and then oh, oh gee, guess what? It gets capitalized at a billion dollars. And you suckers have all driven up that value. So I'd rather eavesdrop on some strangers on the street.
0: We know you, Michael, you're the guy in the restaurant with, you know, your hand up to your ear, just like eavesdropping on the convos. And that's exactly how we like you.
1: Well, I'm polite about it.
0: (laughs) I love it. Life's rich pageant. All right. Well, my guess is that you're not missing that much. I mean, who has time for all of this anyway?
1: You know, you know who's not on Clubhouse? Who? Okay. Stu Heritage has this crazy story this week. Do you know about these people digging tunnels under London?
0: Well, I didn't until Stu wrote this piece. Tell me what exactly is going on.
1: Okay. So in London, the government is building an underground, this thing called HS2, which is this expansion of a railroad, right? And they've been building this for years and it's been bedeviled by setbacks. They've discovered old gravesites and blah, blah, blah. But anyway, there is this long history in in the UK of people digging tunnels as a form of protest, right? You know, I think people used to like strap themselves to trees or lay down in a road to like prevent development. Now they dig tunnels and they're sort of inspired by the old North Vietnamese who used to big build tunnels in the Vietnam War. And because what's the hardest thing to to extract someone from? A tunnel. Like it's basically like without killing them. So there's this guy and they, 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 they've they all followed. And they Disco Dave, who was the guy who sort of like came up with this years ago and popularized it if that can be applied to digging tunnels and hiding out in them in the UK. And now there've been a group of them uh, led by... Written, and now it's led by this guy named Swampy, and he's got his kids, laser and blue, and they're down in a tunnel named Kelvin, and they've sort of burrowed in to prove, basically said they want to help protect some trees up above. So they sort of fascinated London and also kind of held parts of London hostage, but like tunneling, who knew? They're not on your cool apps. They're just down there trying to do something good.
0: Well, thank you, Stu, for illuminating us about what's going on in the darkness tunnels. Who knew? Who knew? Who knew? Who knew? Yeah, I love my job. I, you know, we also have a really funny piece by Craig Brown. <laughs> I'm sorry. I just can't. It's about Meghan Markle, who's now considering, quote, very serious book deals from, quote, numerous publishing houses. And Craig says, from this, I take it to mean that it is the deals that are serious rather than the books. And, and he's positing, like, is she perhaps inspired by Sarah, Duchess of York, who's got her uh, bodice ripper coming out, you know, uh, quite soon. Anyway, what do you want to read from Meghan Markle? Michael,
1: please. I don't know. I, you know, I, I, I can't believe she's going to do this interview with Oprah, right? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And then apparently, like, they didn't even give Granny, Elizabeth, a heads up that they're going to, you know, do this. I don't know. Whatever your problems are with your family, like, really, Granny? Come on, she's a nice old lady. You can't can't be mean to your granny.
0: I mean, my question is, like, what is Oprah even going to ask her? Like, I feel like I know way too much about these people already, Michael. I mean, what more is there to ask? Like, was it worth it? Like, I feel like we already have a pretty clear sense of what's going on.
1: What did you think of the photograph that they had this week about with announcing their second child?
0: I mean, it's all very art-directed. Like it to me, it kind of looks like an Ann Taylor catalog.
1: I'm not going to be surprised when four or five months from now I, I I see a video of of you know the exploding blue confetti gender reveal in their backyard. Speaking of Oprah, ooh, what'd you think of Gwyneth Paltrow having COVID?
0: Wait, <laughs> excuse me. I pride myself on the number of times I refresh page six in a day. How did I miss this? Was did this just get announced?
1: I saw it on the Daily Mail, dude.
0: <gasps> wow. Has she recovered?
1: No, she's still. She like says she's got brain fog and uh, lethargy. Oh, no. She said she was one of the early. Headed in one of the early rounds.
0: Oh, can really? You? Oh my gosh. I can't believe she hasn't written about this. Like,
1: God, I love when I can break Gwyneth Paltrow news on you, Ashley.
0: Oh, it's the best. I mean, I can already see like the Netflix TV series about this. By the way, did you have you ever watched the Netflix Goop documentary?
1: No. Okay. All right. And by the way, I only learned about this actually from Brooke. I credit her. She's the one who told me so.
0: Okay. All right. Well, Brooke, thank you for doing God's work here and making sure we know what's happening in Goopland.
1: Exactly. See? So maybe. It's a discussion on Clubhouse. I don't know. You know, that would be the perfect intersection.
0: Mm-hmm. I love it. Okay, Gwyneth Paltrow has like had probably more than her fair share of attention, but you know who hasn't really had all that much recently till now is Norma Kamali.
1: I know. Wait. So, you know who's obsessed with Norma Kamali thanks to you? Who? Brooke.
0: No way. Is she? Yeah.
1: I mean, she's like, oh, do you know Norma Kamali? She's like 902 years old and she looks like she's uh, 44?
0: You know, she's pretty incredible. She really is. I mean, she was doing the goop thing like way before Gwyneth. Okay. She's 75 years
1: old. She's the original OG, original goop.
0: We've got this piece on her in the issue this week. So many great reveals. She's planning to live until she's 120. Like not she hopes to live until she's 120. Like she's fully planning it. Okay. She launched her line in the 1970s. Like she started, there was a swimsuit. That was the first thing. And then she designed this sleeping bag coat, which she came up with on a camping trip in the seventies. And it's still a bestseller. In fact, Andre Leon who writes for us has three of them. They're always on rotation. Um, but she really was way ahead of her time. I mean, she did like designer sweatshirts in the eighties. I mean, like she was basically rocking COVID style 40 years ago. Okay. She got into e-commerce in the nineties. She even had her own wellness cafe in the knots. So like she, again, she was Gwyneth pre Gwyneth and her business is on fire because guess what? She's been making those kind of comfortable work from home clothes that still look pretty cool on zoom for 35 years so she now has apparently a business that's in the 25 to 50 million dollar zone
1: not bad i mean you look at the photographs in the in the in the story this week thanks to ann schneider our photo director who does amazing work but i mean these designs the fashion from like 40 years ago look as modern and cool now as they did then and i mean if you i, I imagine many people don't know kamali's work take a look at it and read this piece because she is one of these talking about influencers an influential person in the history and the uh, of american style international style and she she definitely deserves to sort of be rediscovered
0: She's pretty epic. God, we've got a hell of a book review this week, Michael. I'm dying to read this. It's a a new book called Confident Women, Swindlers, Grifters, and Shapeshifters of the Feminine Persuasion by Tori Telfer.
1: Who doesn't love female grifters more than you and I?
0: I mean, this is really like right in our wheelhouse.
1: And who got out of prison this week?
0: Oh, I love it. Anna Delvey. Yeah. Anna. Anna. Meet me at The Standard for a socially distanced outdoor cocktail. I want to hear all about it.
1: Your favorite gal. Oh, I am I wonder if she's in this book. But yeah, this is, tell us about, tell us about this book.
0: Michael, no, you know what I'm going to do right now? Anna Delvey, you probably do listen to Morning Meeting. I feel like it's kind of your thing. Look, Michael and I will take you to the Waverly Inn. Meet us outside. Dinner and drinks on us. We'll stay distant. You stay chatty. Deal? Okay. All right. dun, dun, dun. Just had to put that out there. All right, continue Michael,
1: please. No, so this book is a gigantic book, wonderful book, but I mean about just that wonderful species of female grifters. And I mean she even has a whole chapter on what she calls the Anastasias, which are that subset of women through the last century who have claimed to be the lost Romanov from the from the from the Russian czar, right? It's that and it's all the way up to people like Roxy Rice which was a St. Louis girl with a knack for getting 1970s sports celebrities to believe that she moved in their circle. And she was she was infamous at 19 and by 23 was completely forgotten. But
0: Yeah, there's a lot. What I like about this is it takes a real historical view. It's not just us talking about random people we used to see at the Beatrice Inn. I mean, they really go back to like the gals who were sowing the seeds of the French Revolution. We'll take it.
1: Yeah. So that's a good book that'll get you through the next few weeks. Mm-hmm.
0: Michael, I want to talk to you about a story I'm working on. Tell me. Should we look forward to the future? You know, for profit feminism has always been one of these beats that I pay extra close attention to. And I'm dying to write about how the women in the Biden-Harris, like how the women who are adjacent to the Biden-Harris administration are profiting or not profiting or trying to toe the line between profiting and not profiting from the Kamala moment. Five days before Kamala Harris was sworn in as vice president, Mina appeared on the Today Show, uh, and she was interviewed by Jenna Bush Hager, and she was discussing, you know, the historic nature of the moment, and she also pitched uh, her new children's book, which is called Ambitious Girl, which was released on the eve of the inauguration. And, and of course, her whole brand is about Ambitious Girl. So, uh, apparently a White House official watched the segment and, you know, there were there was a conversation that she was using, uh, you know, the publicity that came from being the niece of the vice president to promote her own brand.
1: I think she also flew on a private jet to the inauguration.
0: Oh, it's always the PJ that gets you, Michael.
1: It is. It always comes back to bite you.
0: The White House official told the LA Times that some things can't be undone. That being said, behavior needs to change. Ouch. <laughs> All right, Michael. Please, it's a long, cold winter. I have no life. Recommend something, anything to me. Help me get through it.
1: I can't. I, I'm, I'm, I'm worried about you. I'm worried.
0: <laughs> I'll be fine. I got myself a happy lamp on Amazon. It will all improve from here.
1: You got yourself a what?
0: A happy lamp. You know those, like I, they simulate light or something. Did you really? Yes.
1: Where do you have it?
0: Oh, it looks awful. I keep it in my desk drawer. It's terrible looking. And you have to do it early in the day or else you'll be up all night long. What do you do? You just sit in front of it and try to like think nice thoughts and close your eyes.
1: Does it like have vitamin D in it or something?
0: It's supposed to do something like it's supposed to fight seasonal affective disorder, which by the way, I've not been diagnosed with, yet I'm pretty sure I have.
1: Do you think if is 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 seasonal affective disorder a pre-existing condition to get the vaccine? Because maybe we should lobby for that.
0: That's fascinating. That's funny. No, I don't know about that. Maybe. Just banging down the doors of New York Presbyterian. I have seasonal affective disorder.
1: What do you got to recommend for me this week?
0: What do I have to recommend for you? You know, I was thinking about this. Michael, you're going to laugh when I tell you this, but guess what I have been... Reading. I, I don't know. Well, what author has been my quarantine go-to?
1: So I should be a better partner.
0: <laughs> I should be a better partner. Just repeat that to yourself ten times before you go to sleep. No, um, Kurt.
1: Joan Didion. No.
0: Curtis Sittenfeld. So Curtis Sittenfeld is my jam because I, you know, I loved her Rodham book and that got me started. And then I felt like I needed to go back and reread prep and blah, blah, blah. So anyway, now I'm on American Wife, which I have never read before. So this is Curtis Sittenfeld's thinly veiled, uh, fictionalized account of Laura Bush's salad days as a young woman married to uh, an up and coming politician. And let me tell you, it's a delight for the senses.
1: Oh, good to know. Mm-hmm. All right. Yeah.
0: What about Taking
1: you? I have two movies to recommend. Woof! And I'm kind of keep trying to give people a break from like committing to like eight, 10 part miniseries. Okay. The Life Ahead. Sophia Loren started making movies, I think, when she was 15 in like 1950, right? So now she's back with this movie, The Life Ahead. Came out late last year. You might not have seen it, but I'm kind of about rediscovering some things that you may have missed in the, in the holiday mm-hmm. rush. Okay. She's 86 years old. And- This is directed by her son and she plays an aged prostitute in Bari, Italy who reluctantly agrees to look after this orphan Senegalese street kid uh, who's played by an actor named Ibrahima Gai. And this kid lights up every scene. Anyway, it's a lovely film and it sits in line with what I think are like the best descendants of that Italian neorealism from the 50s and 60s. Really beautiful. I hope she keeps making more films. Terrific, terrific film. My second one, If you're looking for something to really cheer you up, Ashley, or just really sort of like take your mind somewhere else. Yeah. Have you heard of this movie, My Octopus Teacher?
0: Yes, I've seen this. Love it.
1: Okay. True story. It's a documentary about this guy, a burned out filmmaker named Craig Foster, who lives in South Africa, goes snorkeling in the ocean off his house one day, and he sees this octopus and he goes into the water every day for a year and forms this life-changing bond with this octopus. And... The less I say about this, the better, but you just have to literally like plunge into it and you're going to be amazed at where the beauty of this imagery and the story takes you, right? It's, it's, it's a pure 90 minutes of Zen and really leaves you almost in tears.
0: Michael, I actually, for once, am slightly ahead of the curve.
1: You know what Brooke made? What was her movie selection for us to watch on Sunday, Valentine's Day? Ooh, it's a movie I had never seen. It's 20 years old.
0: 13 going on 30.
1: It's a rom-com.
0: God, 20-year-old rom-com? I've seen them all.
1: And I loved it.
0: Okay, tell me the
1: star. You'll guess it. Renee Zellweger.
0: Bridget Jones? Yeah. What?
1: I loved it. You haven't seen Bridget Jones? <laughs> no, I hadn't seen it. Oh, Look, my God. I hadn't really Well, listen to Brittany. I didn't really see Bridget Jones. It was, you know, I
0: thought it was fantastic. Whenever I'm in a terrible mood, it's the first thing I turn on. And that happens a lot.
1: See, there you go. I found something to cheer you up.
0: We should have, okay, our next airmail party, by the way, we should have, what was it called? Tarts and...
1: Tarts and Vickers.
0: Tarts and Vickers. That is the theme for the airmail holiday 2021 party. I have just declared it. Yeah. Get ready, Bill.
1: (laughs) Get ready, Chris.
0: Uh, I'm going to get the bunny ears. Check, check, check. So, hey, everyone can be a vicar, Michael. You and I will be at the tarts. Done.
1: I don't know what what kind of tart I'd make, but sure. Whatever whatever it does. (laughs) We're partners. I'll do whatever you say.
0: You're the best. I love it. All right. Well, on that note, Michael, do you want to read us out before we just go down to this
1: deep hole? It would be my pleasure. Thank you. Morning Meeting is produced by Airplay Productions and edited by Jesse Cannon. Our co-editors are Graydon Carter and Alessandra Stanley. Chief Operating Officer is Bill Keenan, and our Deputy Editors are Nathan King and Chris Garrett. Our CMO is Emily Davis, and our music supervisor is Randall Poster. The theme music is Cute Monster by the Buddy Collette Quintet. A new edition of Airmail is published every Saturday, so please do subscribe. Enjoy all of our stories on Airmail.news, which is updated every day. You can also find us on Twitter and Instagram at Airmail Weekly. We will be back here next Saturday with another edition of Morning Meeting. In the meantime, be sure to subscribe at Apple Music or Spotify. Most of all, thanks for joining Ashley and me.